are entering the Freedom Hut. Secretary of DHS is out. The head of the Secret Service is out. There could be some other senior national security folks who are shown the door in the hours and days ahead. We'll talk about what this house cleaning by President Trump is really all about. Here's a hint. The border crisis, at least in part. We'll get into that and also the latest on the loony left and the Russia collusion delusion coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. And the asylum program is a scam. Some of the roughest people you've ever seen. People that look like they should be fighting for the UFC. (laughs) They read a a little page given by lawyers that are all over the place. You know, the lawyers. They tell them what to say. You look at this guy, you say, wow, that's a tough cookie. I am very fearful for my life. I'm very worried that I will be accosted. If I'm sent back home, no, no, he'll do the accosting. <laughs> to confront this border crisis, I declared a national emergency. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. The president understands it's a scam. Being scammed to the border. People are showing up. They're being told what to say before they arrive. They're exploiting the generosity of the American spirit, the kindness of the American people. They're skipping the immigration line. They're making chumps of everybody that are trying to go through the immigration system properly. They're going to be over 100,000 for this month, on track for a million a year. America this year will likely, if this continues, have more people enter the country illegally than we allow legal uh, green card residents and citizens to join the American family. And what do the Democrats want to do about it? Just trash Trump. Nothing constructive, nothing worthwhile from them. They just want to call the president of the United States racist. Now that it's finally beyond any reasonable doubt that there is a crisis, they just want to call President Trump a racist. They want to say that he's opposed to immigrants, that he's a bad guy, he's a bad person. Meanwhile, there's not any seriousness whatsoever from Democrats about how to deal with this. Because what they want is, as you know, amnesty. And so Trump is now at a point where he's got to shake things up. He says, I I need to find a new DHS secretary. I need to find a new head of the Secret Service. Uh, You've got a few other people that are... um, Possibly leaving, according to the Wall Street Journal today, the head of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Francis Cisna, reportedly, Randolph Alice, the Secret Service Director, and John Mitnick, the agency's general counsel, uh, Ron Vitiello, who's the acting director of Immigration and Customs Services, was told on Friday that he needed to step aside. President Trump has announced that Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin uh, McAleenan 
would be appointed as acting DHS secretary, although I believe there's some question as to whether that is, in fact, the, the chain of succession for DHS, but that will be dealt with, I'm, I'm sure. Um, that will be dealt with. Here's what Tom Homan had to say about Kevin McAleenan and Nielsen. Play 14. I can tell you, he's a really smart guy. He has great relationships with the government of Mexico. He has been working steadily, you know, on getting them to cooperate more. Kevin's been the, uh, the tip of the spear on the wall construction. I've worked with Kevin for the past decade, and uh, we worked together during the 2014 crisis and the 2015 crisis under Jay Johnson, almost daily meetings. He's a smart guy. He knows this issue. He has great relationships with the governor of Mexico. And I think, you know, if, if Secretary Nielsen leaves, which I, I want to say one thing, I respect Secretary Nielsen. Anybody that steps up that most difficult job when Congress isn't helping, the courts are stymieing you, it's yeah. a difficult job. So I certainly respect her service to the nation. Respect her service to the nation. I don't think that she was ever really on board with what Trump wanted to accomplish. I think that she was too establishment. This is now Kirsten Nielsen. I think she was a little bit too establishment. Uh, I think that she implemented the separation policy, which we'll talk more about that later on in the show, uh, as a way of showing Trump that she was going to take his policy directive seriously. But keep in mind that the separation policy that had this outcome that the media, the media, that's the one place where they were able to get Trump to back off a policy issue quickly. And it was because of how they told that story. The story was that it's it's terrible and cruel. It's almost cruel and unusual punishment to separate these kids from their parents. But the real issue, the initial issue is, should it be treated as a crime to enter the United States illegally? If it is to be treated as a crime, and therefore it is a criminal act, when someone is arrested for committing a crime, in this country it happens every day, many, many times all across the country, when someone is arrested, uh, they are separated from their children. Now that DHS was unable to track immediately where these children have gone, and, and they're saying that it might take a long time to put them back together, Yes, that's bureaucratic incompetence and ineptitude, but they're also not set up to handle that problem because they're not supposed to have the problem. It exists because of those who are actively and intentionally exploiting our immigration laws, exploiting the situation at the border. Uh, but so Kirsten Nielsen stepping out, I think, opens up some territory here. I was seeing that Rick Perry's being talked about. I th maybe that was withdrawn earlier. I think that was withdrawn. Mike, was that withdrawn today? I think they said that that probably wasn't going to happen, right? Um, that would not be my pick at all. Uh, I, I don't understand the hesitation here. I, I think it's quite clear who should be in this role. I think you want to put Chris Kobach as DHS secretary. Put him in charge. Somebody who is very much in line with the president's thinking on creating a stable and secure border with no more of these loopholes and all this easy-to-get-through, easy-access nonsense. Somebody who is a political fighter and understands the stakes here and is smart enough to maneuver in an environment where they're, they're trying to just destroy people. I mean, I'll, I'll get into this more later on this hour, but the Democrats aren't just happy that, that Kirsten Nielsen's out. They, they want Nielsen to suffer long into the future. They want her to be an ignominious 
exam uh, exemplar of what happens when you cross the left on what is now a major issue for them, which is open borders. The left has decided that there is no longer uh, there is no longer any real reason to deport illegal aliens, and that's where this whole issue just starts to fall apart. The moment that de deportation is no longer on the table for people who are in the country illegally, we do not have immigration laws worthy of the name of law. The moment that we are told that it is too mean, it is unchristian or unfeeling, unthinking, to tell somebody who has violated the law to be in America, that they're going, remember, no one's saying that you get sent to prison for 20 years or anything horrible, but that the, the punishment here very much fits the crime. If you're in America illegally and you are returned to your legal country of residence and, and, and origin, that's not some heinous, terrible thing to do. And I, I'm, I'm sorry for people that, that are from Honduras and, and Guatemala and El, El Salvador and any number of other countries. I saw the people from Pakistan and Bangladesh. and I'm sorry that their countries aren't full of more opportunity that there's so much corruption in the case of these Central American states, that there's so much crime and violence. But our immigration system is supposed to benefit the people here. You know, if you're going to make this a purely moral case, uh, th that the, the role of government is purely moral and not any specific obligation to the citizens and the people that are in this country with res uh, that respect the laws of this country, wh why should we stop, uh, wh why shouldn't we provide welfare benefits to anyone to people all over the world why aren't we just sending checks to people who really need help why doesn't the federal government just decide to become a global charity well you'd say buck at some point we run out of money okay well maybe maybe we only set aside you know 100 billion for that we could afford that right put that on the tab we'll just send money to people around the world try to help well you say buck we already do that in the form of foreign aid no no i mean direct payment we do that for some for some of our own people the government just gives them money to help them out. Why don't we? Oh, because there's a, there's a difference between a U.S. citizen and a foreigner. And that our nation state has to recognize that if it's still going to call upon our obedience to the law and our allegiance to the state itself. There have to be distinctions here. If there's no difference between somebody that arrived, if the federal government thinks there's no difference between somebody that arrived illegally yesterday from Honduras and all of you listening to the show who are U.S. citizens, that has tremendous ramifications for the way that this country will interact with all of its citizens going forward. It also means that our projections about the sustainability of our entitlement programs and, and the future of our economy and, and our political system and all of that will be in flux, and you could argue, I think, will be threatened in many ways. A million illegals a year, every year. And, and when do we think the Congress will step in and stop this? They're not going to. They're simply not going to. But the the unwillingness to deport people who are nonviolent, uh, or rather, unless they're a violent criminal, that's where this whole thing falls apart. If you can't deport people anymore, you don't have you don't have immigration laws anymore. And we're pretty close. I know we're deporting some people here. You know, they'll show some number, but a lot of them are, you know, uh, people that have just arrived. They were caught very rapidly. No one who falls into this category of 
family unit that arrives at the border claiming asylum, none of those people are going to be deported. None of them. I mean, maybe you tell me some, maybe uh, uh, scratch that. Less than 5% of them will be deported. I think that's a fair number. Less than 5%. So it's a, but it's effectively, for all intents and purposes, none of them. And they're all going to get to stay. And there's more and more that are going to come. So Trump is shaking it up at DHS because if he doesn't have people that are willing to go really hard on this issue and and take the heat, you know, because the, the, the left, they've, they smell blood in the water on this one. They have a, a real sense that if they can just continue to make it socially stigmatizing to work with Trump on immigration, you're going to stop certain people from taking a leadership role and cracking down on what is happening at the border. And if need be, fighting it out in court, you know, have the federal government fight it out with these either different judicial decisions or statutes that are in place right now that are mandating that we have a near-open border, which is a complete and utter outrage. And it is happening under this president. And I wish I could say that I, I had any belief that this was going to improve anytime soon, but uh, it's going to take a lot more than just a change-up at the DHS. But this is, Chris Kobach, I think, is the best choice. I think Chris Kobach would do a really solid job in this role. And, and that's where... Uh, that's where I think the president's head should be. So I know Rick Perry's name's been floated around. There are some others as well. You know, Stephen Miller is still one of the longest-lasting senior advisors to the president in this White House, and he's really credited with being the architect of a lot of the immigration policy that the administration has been pursuing. But if we don't get this right and we don't get a handle on this, the Republican Party's days are numbered. I can't tell you what the number is, but they're numbered. And that's what Democrat Democrats know that they they haven't been able to do well as a national party now for quite some time. Uh, you know they lost a lot of seats under Obama. Yes, they won some back now in the 20, uh, 2018 congressional races, but they've been losing ground at the at the state level, and they've certainly been losing uh, ground by having Donald Trump defeat Hillary Clinton for what they thought would be an eight year Clinton presidency. But now is when we start to see who are going to be the fighters on this issue. Who's going to stand up and say, now is the time to expend some real political capital and to take the heat because the border is effectively open. And this is not going to get any better unless they take dramatic action about this. So I'm, I'm going to continue to focus on this. I, I really hope that Trump has some ideas and that his team come up with some ideas because once this gets further along, the political incentive to take action becomes less and less. Because a lot of senators, a lot of congressmen, especially your congressmen down around the border area, uh, or in places where a lot of these uh, migrants that are claiming asylum, uh, that they end up settling themselves in this country, which sanctuary cities, the number one place they like to go. If that's the case, um, you know, we we need to finally change the political calculation before it's too late, before it's, and maybe, it, I don't know, I, I wish I, I, it might be too late right now. We might be past the point of no return. I'm not yet willing to throw in the towel on it, but if Trump can't do it, who can? And when is it going to happen? When will we have a secure border? These are all questions we have to ask ourselves. Uh, team, I've got a lot more show coming your way. Stay with me. I've got an 11-year-old daughter I get to have here on weekends. I can't even let her go outside. 
I can't come outside without carrying some kind of weapon because of my safety. People along the border, it seems, are concerned. That was uh, Jeff Allen, who's a border property owner, saying he's worried about his 11-year-old daughter uh, going outside without a weapon because of, of safety concerns. We know the cartels are super active along the border right now. They're making a ton of money off of all the human smuggling, a lot of money off of all this this human misery that's occurring. And yet, we're supposed to believe that there's no tie-in between opioid deaths in this country and our porous border, that the drain on resources, that all these families showing up, these family units showing up, crossing illegally and then surrendering, uh, that that doesn't do anything, that doesn't make our streets left safe. I mean, it, it all ties in together. There is a flood of drugs and criminal activity that comes in across the border. That's just a fact. And all the different ways that law enforcement gets pulled away from their primary mission and is forced to play, you know, border Red Cross and sort of, uh, you know, soup kitchen and health station and processing center for people who know what they're doing. They know that this is not the way it's supposed to go. They know that there shouldn't be uh, that they shouldn't be doing this, that it's illegal, but they're told this is this is a great scam. It's a great way to skip the whole immigration line, to skip through the process, and to take advantage of the American people. I mean, we think about what's really happening here. We have laws in place so that people who are truly fleeing oppression and violence directed at them specifically for their beliefs, for their ideology, not because they're from a violent country that happens to have a high street crime. That's not asylum. People that are will be targeted, tortured, killed for their beliefs, whether religious or political. We want to have some open doors for those people who fit that criteria. You know, so this is a charitable impulse that the American people have. What's happening is people see that and they say, "Well, they're taking a they're taking a charity collection of sorts here. I want some of that. Let me get some of that charity money." In this case, it's let me get some of that charity asylum. By lying about what's going on, abusing the system, and doing it in a systematic scale that's completely undermining our immigration process. I mean, I'd say the Democrats should be ashamed, but we know they're incapable of shame on this issue of immigration. Remember when the left called the Green New Deal bold? Or how about their bold defense of anti-Semitism in the House? I think they're mistaking bold for something else because the way I define bold is the taste of freedom I get every morning with my Black Rifle coffee. Black Rifle delivers the best roast-to-order coffee right to your door. And Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes things easy. Just pick your blend and the amount you want and Black Rifle ships your coffee right to your door every month hassle-free. No lines, no running out. Just great coffee shipped right to your door every month hassle-free. Plus, when you join their coffee club, you'll receive discounts and offers not available to other customers. When you drink Black Rifle coffee, you're supporting a company that gives back to veteran and first responder causes and serves coffee and culture to those who truly love America. For a bold cup of America's best coffee, visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and get 20% off your first purchase. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 20% off. Congress has a right to the entire report with no redactions whatsoever, so we can see what's there. We're already hearing uh, leaks from the Mueller uh, uh, team that, that didn't leak at all for 22 months, but now seem to be, be very unhappy. We're hearing leaks that uh, Barr misrepresented uh, 
in, in his uh, so-called summary letter, what's in the report, that he sugarcoated it, that he made it look more favorable for the president than it was. He is someone who is an agent of the administration, is an appointee, a political appointee of the president, uh, whose interests he may very well be protecting here. There was, in plain sight, open collusion with the Russians. Wait, I'm sorry, I thought there was no collusion. How is Jerry Nadler saying there is collusion? How is Adam Schiff still sticking to, sticking to his story on this too? These people are evidence-free. You know, this is why when the media always does this thing with Trump where they say he, he claims without evidence, which is a very obvious way to, to try to undermine the president's credibility and his claims. You know, without evidence, he says this. Without evidence, he says that. Where's the evidence of the collusion we're told about? You know, Jerry Nadler isn't just saying the president uh, that there's evidence of collusion, but that Attorney General Barr is uh, unethical and can't be trusted. What is that based on? Where's the evidence? An anonymous leak to a newspaper that says that, and remember, that's a subjective judgment anyway, that Barr was too favorable in how he, you know, characterized the, the Mueller report. But I'm hearing, I heard today, and as you know, my sources on this are pretty good. Uh, I heard today that Barr may very well um, release the report. Not It won't be this week, it'll be next week, is the expectation right now. Now, that could get pushed back. This is D.C. You got a lot of people that, you know, move slowly and nothing's going to make them move any faster. But I, I do believe that, that that sounds right to me. That sounds like it's in the wheelhouse of, of when or in, in the realm of when this, this will be released. And then I'll have 300 some odd pages of speed reading to do so I can bring you exactly what is in this report because you know they're going to mischaracterize it. You know the Democrats are going to come up with a, a million different ways to say, oh, there really is collusion when there's not. This will be a, a, a version of the Democrats saying to you, who do you believe, me or your lying eyes? That's certainly what Jerry Nadler does. Uh, Rudy, which, not Rudy Rudiger, who I, I thought was pretty decent in the movie uh, Rudy. I, I did not, uh, I don't know, fight in Irish and all that good stuff. No, Rudy Giuliani's out there talking about what Nadler is saying and basically in a not so, not to put too fine a point on it, is like this guy's a loon. And this is nonsense. Play 10. I don't like what Jerry Nadler just did, innuendo, and there must be more. So when he talks about the attorney general being biased, my goodness, and on his committee, he's got some of the most rabid people that hate Trump. Rabid people that hate Trump. That's what was going on here. I mean, anytime that somebody hates Trump, they're referred to as neutral. In the government bureaucracy and the, you know, anyone who's in a position, a deciding position, a position of authority who hates Trump, we're told that person is a paragon of virtue, ethical beyond reproach. Anyone who would dare to question such a person must be doing so out of dishonest motives, out of a sense of, you know, Allegiance to Trump above country. But when the person clearly hates Trump, media runs overboard or goes into overdrive. Overboard's a type of motor, right? Goes overboard, switches in overdrive, over something or other. 
They do that because they're trying to shape the narrative as much as they can, because the media is an outgrowth of the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is an outgrowth of the media. These are symbiotic organisms that need each other, that rely on each other. And in the era of Trump, when the media has been called out for what it truly is, now the Democrat Party and the media more than ever are in lockstep with each other. Because uh, the, word, the word is out about them. We're figuring all this out. Speaking of the word being out, Devin Nunes, I'm always very proud. I'm one of the few people that pronounces his name correctly because he told me that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Devin Nunes is making criminal referrals about what's going on here to Attorney General Barr. The same guy who I would note that you have Nadler saying is untrustworthy just because he's not a rabid anti-Trump partisan. Now we're told he's untrustworthy. You know, they'll, they'll smear him. They'll throw his reputation under the bus. They, they don't care. Even he was, The guy was already attorney general before. No one seemed to have a problem with him. But now he's a bad guy. He's somebody that can't be trusted. Nunes, though, realizes, you know who really can't be trusted? The Democrats who have been running around telling collusion fairy tales for the last two years. The top Obama appointees in the FBI, the CIA, and other places who quite clearly used the power and the access that they had in an orchestrated effort to bring down President Trump. Those are people that should not be, that cannot be trusted. And the only way to find the full extent of their underhanded machinations is if there are investigations of this. We should know about this. I have, I mean, I can tell you this with, without any exaggeration. I'm somebody who comes from within the federal government, within the national security world. And I have lost confidence in my former home agency at the CIA. I've lost confidence in the FBI's ability to handle politically sensitive investigations. I mean, and lost confidence is probably an understatement. I think that these institutions are deeply damaged. I think that those of us who are paying attention feel like we should take everything that goes on at the FBI and the DOJ going forward that touches on Comey and the Hillary emails. And, you know, we, we have to approach this with deep skepticism. I know there's going to be an IG report about the Russia investigation that's supposed to come out next summer, but I, I think that what we saw with the Hillary emails was that they laid out a huge case of a double standard, and then they said there's no politicization, there's no double standard. So we can't trust them to wash their own laundry. We can't trust them to be their own arbiters of what is done in good faith and what is what is fair and what is right. And that's why Nunes making this criminal referral about people who are involved in that whole mess and saying, hey, we need to get to the bottom of this. I think this matters. Play eight. So we're prepared this week to notify the Attorney General that we're prepared to to send those referrals over. As of right now, this is this may not be all of them, but this cleans up quite a bit. Uh, we have eight referrals that we are prepared to send uh, over to the Attorney General this week. All of these are classified or sensitive, and so because they, a lot of them could contain sensitive or classified information. Uh, five of them are what I would call straight-up referrals, so just referrals that are that name someone and name the specific crimes. Those crimes are lying to Congress, misleading Congress. I'm telling you, just give it a little time, but it is very likely 
that you will have people who were hardliners, absolute hardliners on any lie, even the smallest lie, if it was allegedly told by somebody tied to uh, President Trump. Some of those same people now will turn around when it's Andy McCabe, who did his good part for the Democrats as far as they're concerned by trying to take down Trump. You know, when it's somebody like that, we will be told that lying doesn't really matter as much, that there's no underlying crime. You will see the hypocrisy, the double standard in real time. Because there are people, I mean, Andy McCabe should face charges. The inspector general said he lied more than once under oath. So it could not be any more clear. I mean, if that's the finding of the inspector general of the FBI, that guy should face criminal charges. There can't be a special like buddy-buddy club where, oh, just because you're friends with people that are in that building who go out and prosecute normal Americans for lying all the time. And in the case of someone like a Jim Comey, that who McCabe worships, like some kind of weirdo, uh, Jim Comey, you know, locked people up for very minor lies. No problem doing that. Just look at what he did to Martha Stewart. And yet now we're going to be told that, you know, they, they should be, they'll be given a second chance. Manafort's in solitary confinement, but Andy McCabe shouldn't even face prosecution. I'm sorry. We, we need to, just because the left doesn't want to talk about this as much anymore doesn't mean we should let them off. And if we take our focus off this issue and let them write the narrative after the fact and, and pretend that they've been acting in good faith, we will never get justice here. So these, refer- these, these referrals that Nunes is making, we've got to drill down into these and we've got to push to get accountability. We'll be right back. Nielsen has been the brand ambassador for President Trump's most inhumane policies. For the rest of her life, people will look at her and think, oh, that's the woman who put children in cages. She oversaw the family separation policy, which prompted protests across the country and heartbreaking images of children in cages. Nielsen will likely best be remembered for enforcing the president's zero tolerance policy, which resulted in the separation of thousands of migrant children from their families. Anyone who comes in now runs the same risk that Nielsen has of ruining their reputation for the rest of their lives. Nielsen's legacy, family separations. You know, when we talk about how Democrats wield the whole, oh, who's going to be invited to the cocktail party as some kind of weapon? This is exactly what we're talking about. When the media does this whole reputation trashing of an administration official on the way out, absent any neutrality, absent the necessary context, and and it's a part of a, of a broader move to make people that work for Trump untouchable after they leave government service. There is, in fact, there are a number of immigrant groups, pro-immigrant groups that are effectively open borders groups or or advocates for near open borders uh, policies that have opened up this campaign where they are asking Fortune 500 companies. They're reaching out to the CEOs. they're, They're sending letters. They're trying to put a pressure campaign uh, from these pro-immigration, and it's not even pro, pro-illegal pro immigration organizations. That's what they are. They're not pro-immigration. They're pro-illegal immigration. And, you know, these are, in some cases, I'm sure they're getting not just Soros dollars, they're probably getting some kind of a tax subsidy, some kind of 501c3 status. But they're sending around a blacklist of people that work for Trump. They've named Sarah Huckabee Sanders. They've named Kirsten Nielsen. 
uh, as people that should not be brought into corporate leadership roles, whether on a board or uh, in some kind of a communication or PR strategy, essentially they're trying to cut off the routes to the private sector for senior officials of the Trump administration who at some point want to leave government service and go back to being normal everyday folks, or at least private sector folks. Normal everyday probably doesn't get you on the board of a Fortune 500 company. But they're very, very aggressive with this. And these are concerted campaigns, and they have real ramifications. You know, there are those who will think twice about joining the Trump administration and and fighting for these policies, fighting for the kind of changes we talk about here on the show, because they know that they've got kids, they've got families to support, and they don't want to be the target of this kind of harassment, this kind of blacklisting effort. They don't want to lose earning potential going forward because they serve their country. And I, I'm sorry, but you know this. They'll deny it. They'll, they'll say it's not true. But Republicans, conservatives, we don't do this. There is something much more vindictive and insidious about the mindset on the left when it comes to punishing political opponents. It's not enough just to shame them in their current job working for an administration. It's not enough to just try to get them fired, dig something up from their past to you know then continue to shame them uh, when they leave office or when they leave their role. But now they want to make sure that nobody else will hire them either. Now they want to make sure that you know your reputation is ruined when you serve in the Trump administration. You will be mocked, ridiculed, harassed, chased out of restaurants until you leave. And then after you leave, you'll still be mocked and ridiculed. And there'll be an active effort to prevent you from getting hired by companies in the private sector that may want to leverage or use the expertise of former senior government officials. This does not happen to Democrats. You look at the jobs that former Obama people got, top, top kind of jobs. I mean, the stuff that you you look at Jay Carney at Amazon and the people that were in Obama's inner circle. I mean, they they can't get big enough as far as the publishers are concerned. They can't get a big enough advance. They can't be well take uh, well taken care of enough by corporate America giving them board seats to get paid, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to show up for four quarterly uh, board meetings. You know, they they get all those benefits. I mean, this you may be saying, Buck, why do we care about this? Because this matters. And for us not to recognize it as mattering is a failure on the part of conservatives. I mean, there should be, you know, there are there's, there are these conservative, super successful, true conservatives across the country. There are conservative billionaires, some of them names you know, a lot of them names you don't. And, you know, there are all these initiatives. They want, you know, they give money to the foundations and these different things. But what we really also need is some pushback in the private sector and, and some people to stand up and say, you know what, we're, we're happy to hire... Our huge company, conservatives are welcome here. Conservatives are are a part of the American family and a necessary one. And we're not going to allow for any of this political witch hunt stuff to extend into our HR department. You know, the only way to fight back against this smearing, undermining, boycott mentality that the left uses and unfortunately wields very effectively, the only way to really fight back about it is to take this on head on to start to use you know conservatives in positions of, of authority and power 
need to stand up and say, this is not okay. You know, political discrimination in the private sector is not something that we should just lay, lay down for because it is very real. And that's why they're doing it. I mean, this is why you see these different immigration groups trying to just create even, even a hint, even a, a perception of scandal around the hiring of, of, uh, of a Sarah Huckabee Sanders at some point in the future or a Kristen Nielsen or any of these people who have worked. You know, Stephen Miller, trust me, they hate Stephen Miller. They can't stand him. They're going to try to make sure that he can't get a job anywhere. You know, these people are vindictive. The left is vindictive. You have to remember that. They are not into forgive and forget. They're not even into converting you. They want to punish wrong think. They want to punish conservatives and the right. They want to make examples of us and leave us up smeared, ruined, destroyed as a warning to all the rest. Congress has failed to fund uh, CBP for additional border patrol agents. They don't believe there's even a crisis on the border. And when they do, they call it humanitarian crisis. They didn't believe there was caravans. The American people, the voters, need to call Congress to, to task and say, you need to fix this. I, I tell you, you can, you can build that wall, and it's going to certainly help. But then they'll just come to the port of entries and make false, uh, fraudulent claims to asylum. We've got to fix the asylum laws, and that's up to Congress. Kevin can't do that, unfortunately, but Kevin will do everything he can with his power. And with this president, through executive action, do what they can operationally that Congress fails to do legislatively. So what can be done here via executive action? What could the executive branch, the government do to help fix the crisis at the border? Got somebody with us now who can certainly speak to that and a whole lot more. Mark Morgan's with us. He is the uh, former Obama uh, era border chief and also retired assistant director at the FBI. Mark, thanks for making the time. You bet, Buck. Okay, so how how can... Trump, or to the extent that he can fix things, what should he or can he do? Well, well, first of all, the, the clip you paid, uh, you know, uh, Tom Holman, I know him well. So if I could have 30 seconds with the, uh, the, the president, I'd say, hey, bring Tom Holman back, number one. Uh, but but I, I think what needs to happen, too, is a little bit change in a mindset. And this is what I mean. Congress has failed, Buck. We know that. They have continued to fail, and I don't see them changing their way on the horizon. I mean, they need to fix these asylum laws. They need to reset the Flores decision. They need to fix TVPRA. Those two things together are really what's generating catch and release. Congress could change that and end catch and release in 15 minutes. I don't see it happening. So if I was DHS secretary, if I was Kevin, I'd be like, okay, we got to do this on our own. So we need to come up with some strategies, knowing full well that Congress is not going to be part of the, the, the solution. They're not going to do our job. We're going to have to do it. The president's going to have to do it. Change the mindset and, and, and drive on. But so what, what should the president then? I mean, let's for a second, let's just put aside whether Congress will yep. take action. Um, what should the president do? So there's a couple of things. So he's already instituted a, a couple. One is the MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocol. And what they're doing that in a couple of select locations on the border uh, right now, I suggest you do it border-wide, uh, southwest border-wide. And that is there, when you come, a, whether you're a family or unaccompanied minor, and you apply for asylum, they, they need to wait in Mexico while they're going through the immigration process. That alone will, will drastically change uh, 
our issues as far as being overwhelmed because right now we're, we're letting in hundreds of thousands a, a month, a, a, as we all know. That alone, get Mexico to get off the bench and become an active participant in the solution of this is, is one of the key factors that needs to happen. Now, you were running Border Patrol, uh, border, you were Border Chief during the Obama administration. What's the truth of family separation under Obama? Did it happen? And, and what was done about those initial migrants uh, coming to the border, especially unaccompanied minors, and then the beginning of the family unit surge, uh, what was done that should have been handled differently? So I, I'm not sure initially there could have been anything done differently. Look, we, we have to go back, and, and Buck, I think you're asking one of the, the really salient points that people need to understand. The Border Patrol was never designed for this crisis. The, everything about them, their, their, their training, their mission, their facilities are all designed for adults. And part of the whole process is you, you apprehend them coming illegally, you process them, and you remove them back to their country of origin. That's what the mechanism is designed for. So in 2014, we saw the influx first of children and then family units. It really caught everybody off guard. And Border Patrol actually did an incredible job in DHS, CBP. And when, when their facilities got filled, I mean, they, they, they created these new facilities that are now, and again, this was done under obama and now they're being disparaged as cages those facilities were set up under obama and the reason because border patrol facilities were tapped out and they the conditions weren't adequate for children and they so they scrambled to set up these other facilities that would better facilitate the safety and security of families and children they actually did an incredible job to really scramble and really address an unprecedented unpredicted crisis in 2014 so what what could have been done to avert this then all along the way? I mean, as we're looking at this now, I mean, I've got people that are that are experts with decades of experience handling border related issues, telling me that it's, it's worse than it's ever been. I mean, that's that's the that the situation right now in terms of a secure border where we control who comes and goes and there aren't loopholes to exploit and there aren't masses of people showing up. It's the worst it's ever been. So how did how did we get here? Why did it go so wrong? It's easy. So I've actually, so the experts you're talking to, we're in lockstep. I've, I've actually saying right now the crisis that we face on, uh, is the worst it's ever been for this country because of the demographics, right? So we're, we're going to about a million this year, unlike in the 90s and 2000s where we had over a million, but we sent 90% of them back to their country of origin, which was Mexico. Now, because of the family uh, units and unaccompanied children and the broken laws, we're going to get a million this year. We're going to let 650,000 into the country. It's an absolutely the worst we've ever seen. Here's the problem. In 2014, it's the same issue then as it is now. Again, the Flores decision and TVPRA. That was catch and release. They knew it in 2014 under the Obama administration. They could have fixed it then. They refused to fix it then, and they've refused to fix it ever since then. That's the problem. That's the incentive. Grab a kid, set one foot on American soil, abuse our system and generosity, and you're allowed in, never to be heard from again. Do you think that there's just no will also from this administration and, and, and from the American political class at a minimum to enforce the component of the laws that involve interior deportation. I mean, what, what I'm really asking you is yep. people that stand around waiting for asylum, assuming they show up for their hearing, which a large percentage of them don't seem to show up for their hearings. Uh, but assuming they show up for their hearing, they don't get asylum. They then have a, another effort to try and legally challenge the deportation proceedings against them. But do we even have the political will to deport people that Reply, uh, that apply for asylum and don't get it. 
So, the, Buck, another, you, you got it. You, you, you know this issue, and that's another pillar. So you asked me what needs to be done immediately, and the other thing that I would say, that one of these pillars has to be aggressive. Look, when there's a crisis, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a political guy. I'm a law enforcement guy. We have a crisis. You need immediate, swift, and bold action to address a crisis. One of those pillars that needs to happen right now is increased interior enforcement, and we absolutely need to target the one million people that have come here illegally, filed fraudulent claims, have had their due process through the immigration process, and received deportation orders of removal, and they still don't comply, and they're here illegally. We need to go after those individuals as a rule of law issue and remove them. We start doing that, you're going to take a huge part of that incentive away for these people to come. Because if they know ultimately, when it's all said and done, after they have their due process, if they're going to remove, you're going to see the numbers go down because we're applying consequences under the rule of law. What other consequences that are currently on the books for immigration, whether for the people themselves who are here legally or for employers? What else has to be done to get how do we get this issue under control overall? So that's the next issue, right? Again, I, I'm I'm going off the assumption that Congress isn't going to do their job. Congress, again, they fixed Flores and TVPRA. They will remove the largest part of the incentives. But I'm going that, that they don't have the will and they're not going to do that. So the next thing is, and, and ICE just did this this week, is we need to go after the employers that are hiring illegal aliens. So let, let's, let's go after, again, rule law, enforce our laws, and go after the people that have had due process and are still here illegally. Then let's go after the employers that are hire, hiring illegal aliens that do not have the right to work. We start doing that. You start removing the incentives without Congress having to do anything. Is this going to get better or is this going to get worse this year, Mark? If, if, if they don't take that bold, swift, uh, immediate action of, of, of forcing Mexico to get in the game and do an interior enforcement, and one thing I would add is, is, is driving courts you know, to the border and immigration and law judges and everything that you need to actually go through the immigration proceedings quick and swiftly, if they, if they don't do all that, you're going to see the numbers increase. I, I, I will anticipate if we're not successful in doing all of that, you, you're going to see over a million. But if they can do that, even without Congress acting, you're still, they're going to be able to dra- dramatically reduce the numbers. Mark Morgan, everybody, former Obama border chief, retired assistant director at the FBI. Mark, thank you so much for making the time, my friend. We appreciate it. Anytime, Buck. Team, we'll be right back. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the Buck Brief. The Islamic Republic's Revolutionary Guard Corps has actively engaged in terrorism and created, supported, and directed other terrorist groups. The IRGC masquerades as a legitimate military organization, but none of us should be fooled. The Trump administration is simply recognizing a basic reality. The IRGC will take its rightful place on the same list as terror groups it supports. IRGC, folks, now a terrorist, officially a terrorist organization. This from the uh, the Wall Street Journal with the story today. The Trump administration escalated a pressure campaign against Iran by designating the country's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a foreign terrorist organization. It's the first time an element of a foreign state has been officially named a terrorist entity. Quote, this action will significantly expand the scope and scale of our maximum pressure on the Iranian regime, President Trump said. If you're doing business with the IRGC, you will be bankrolling terrorism. 
The designation aims to squeeze the IRGC's financial resources and shrink its military presence in the Middle East, helping the U.S. crack down on businesses in Europe and elsewhere controlled by the organization. Designation also allows the U.S. to subject IRGC officials and those who provide support to the organization to travel restrictions and lets U.S. prosecutors bring charges against those who provide material support to the IRGC. So this is this is a a big step, and this is going to this is going to turn the heat up pretty substantially, I think, in our situation uh, vis-a-vis the Iranians. I, I believe that we're gonna we're gonna find out that this this is something that the Iranians are are very sensitive to because the IRGC and especially the Quds Force, which is the foreign operations arm of the IRGC, Quds is Arabic for Jerusalem. So that that gives you a sense of where Iran's head is. Uh, the that the IRGC has now been designated in this way will have implications for where they can travel and and where members of the IRGC can go in the Middle East and and obviously around the rest of the world. But one of the untold stories of the Iraq war to this day, or at least story that did not get nearly the attention that it deserves, is that the IRGC uh, was involved in assisting Shia militias, in assisting the, you know, the Sadrist militias, in Iraq in their attacks on U.S. troops, specifically on vehicles and vehicle convoys, American vehicle convoys, with these EFP devices, explosively formed penetrators, a special shape charge uh, explosive that can punch through the hull of armored vehicles and, and does terrible damage, kill people, maim people inside. And the Iranians are responsible for, at a minimum, hundreds, if not, if not thousands, of American deaths in Iraq. And we were just so beaten down by the prospect of holding Iraq together politically in this country that the Bush administration and then obviously the Obama administration after that had just no interest in really holding the Iranians accountable. In fact, the Obama administration's approach to dealing with the Iranians was to try to buy them off, literally buy them off, pallets of cash, show up and give them a whole bunch of money and sign some deal that the Iranians are only signing because it makes not a single painful concession on their part and allows them to become much, much wealthier as a nation in in that whole process. Uh, It's a disastrously bad strategic move, a a terrible deal for the United States. And this is where I think that the genius in effect of Trump, because he does have some genius aspects, folks. I mean, he's... There's some stuff that only Trump understands that only Trump can accomplish. And by by taking this step, obviously Mike Pompeo backs him on this and other members of the administration, but by designating the IRGC in this way, what you really have is showing the Iranians that Trump takes a very different approach and has a very different tone than his predecessor, that he's not in the buying off the Iranians game. Anybody should know, should be able to figure out that allowing an official arm of the Iranian government to arm terrorist militias with impunity, basically, across the Middle East uh, to help Hezbollah, less so, but probably still so, to help Hamas, to help the Assad regime in in Syria and all of its Shabiha militant thugs, you know, to, to do these things 
without the consequences that can be leveled against a level against them with a terrorism designation, it just doesn't really make sense. But, you know, Trump has tackled a lot of issues where the consensus has been, oh, he can't do that. He shouldn't do that. That's a terrible idea. Why would he ever go down that path? And then when he does it, in retrospect, there's this recognition from a lot more folks, including people who know the issues very well, that his application of common sense to incredibly complicated problem sets can bring about some pretty amazing results, can move, can shift the conversation on an issue in a way that hasn't been possible for years and years. It's not just the IRGC designation. It's also, you know, the trade war with the, with China. We've been told all along, oh, he's got this trade war. It's terrible. Trade wars lead to real wars. Why would he allow this? Why would he do this? And now there's a much broader understanding of the fact that we were just in a trade war before and we refused to accept that. We refused to recognize it. But we've, we've been in a trade war for quite some time. It's just a one-way war. The Chinese are waging it and we are suffering. We're the ones who are left wondering when they're going to stop. Well, we're going to complain to the WTO. I mean, China never should have been allowed in the World Trade Organization. China should have been punished for a lot of its activities on trade with us stretching back for years. And yet no administration was willing to do it. Nobody would take those steps until Trump comes along. The whole notion of free trade, as it was discussed in the U.S. in policy circles for decades, is now changed such that you can say, well, yeah, free trade is great. We don't have free trade. Now what? Trump's approach to the wall uh, with the U.S.-Mexico border, another example of this. We have to keep people physically out. We need to make it easier for Border Patrol to catch people who try to enter our, enter our physical space in this country. It's a, it seems like such a simplistic solution. In fact, that was one of the big knocks against it. Oh, it's, you know, this is like something that you would have tried in the third century, not the, not the 21st. Well, it turns out Trump was right on the wall, too. The consensus opinions against him, but true experts know that a wall has been shown to be very effective, is very helpful. And that it is the Trump administration that is willing to push these issues and, and take actions that his uh, predecessors were were not willing to do. And you see this, and you see this on on Russia too. By the way, he sends sniper rifles and other munitions to Russia to uh, to Ukraine to use against Russia, uh, javelin anti tank missiles to use against Russian backed separatists in Ukraine. He does that, and they still call him a Russian stooge. Right. Trump's administration, I mean, tr while Trump has been commander in chief, we blew up our planes, blew up a couple hundred Russians in the Syrian desert. Obama never would have done something like that, allowed something like that. But we were protecting our allies and they were trying to rush as paramilitaries working for the Syrian regime. I tried to rush our Kurdish allies and that was a very bad idea. But common sense in politics is a rarity. And it's one of the things that President Trump does so very well. And that has such an, an important effect on, you know, his politics by instinct. And in many ways, he's a genius when it comes to these things, because nobody else will do what he's willing to do and see it the way it should be seen. And you have no regrets of anything you've said in the last couple of years. Uh, I don't regret calling out this president for what I consider deeply unethical and improper conduct, not a bit. No regrets, says the shifter. Shifty shift. 
No regrets. Running around for two years saying the president of the United States was a traitor, was a Russian asset, that Schiff, who has classified access uh, on the Intelligence Committee, is able to see classified documents. Schiff suggesting that he had seen all he needed to on the classified side to convince him that the president had committed collusion. Nope, that's not true. And now he's out there saying that there's nothing that he would have done differently. I mean, this is why he should never be taken seriously again on television. I mean, he should not be put on television to talk about these issues. Anyone who votes for Adam Schiff is, I think, just suffering from a level of Trump derangement syndrome that is just completely off the rails. And our friend Annie McCarthy pointed this out about Schiff. Play 12. What a prosecutor is interested in is whether there's a criminal conspiracy between Trump and Russia. And knowing that Mueller was not going to come up with that, which I think has been obvious for about 18 months, what the Democrats have been trying to do is shift the ground from what they were hoping Mueller would come up with, which would be an espionage conspiracy to undermine the election, to contacts between Trump people and Russia people, which fall short of collusion. You should look at everybody's connections. We've had 30 years of this government telling us that Russia was a perfectly good place to do business, that it was a strategic partner, that it might be a counter-terrorism partner of the United States. And it wasn't until Trump won the election that suddenly Russia became, you know, our nefarious that's Cold a, War. Interesting point. I agree with Bill Hemmer there. It is an interesting point because uh, uh, the, one of the necessary components of the whole Russia frenzy was, or, I mean, meaning the Russian collusion analysis was to just demonize Russia as this country that we we can't talk to them we can't go near them we can't deal anyone who's spoken to a russian from a campaign has all kinds of problems and you know you know that's that's just completely divorced from reality this is this is absurd this is bizarre that you'd have such a focus on russia as a a primary national security challenge for the united states and, and not even to think of it as a challenge, but to think of it as, as an imminent threat to us, that the Russians will change election outcomes, that the Russians can shape the presidential election with ease. You know, I, I'm somebody who actually used to work in, in, in intelligence, and I can tell you that if, if the Russians spending, let's call it all in, a few, a few million dollars maybe, if they could, with a few million dollars of internet spending and and run, paying those guys to be the internet trolls and all that stuff, if they could sway a multi-billion-dollar U.S. presidential election, and I mean sway via propaganda because they didn't change votes. I'm not saying they, you know, could they hack into something and mess around? They probably could, but that's not really the allegation. The real allegation has always been that the Russians were able to insert themselves in this process in exactly a way that would bring President Trump victory, you know, or bring then-candidate Trump victory. And, and this is just, this is absurd. I, you know, I, I run out of adjectives to describe these things because there's only so many ways you can say crazy, wacko, nuts, absurd. There's only so many variations of that. You know, this is just, this is unserious. This is irrational stuff. 
But Adam Schiff says, you know, no regrets at all. We, we've been fear-mongered to by the left on Russia for two years because they're bitter that Hillary lost the election. That is what has happened. Fear-mongered. Right? They've just done everything they can to create a, this Russian boogeyman situation. And now we know China is the much bigger threat, a much more serious threat and concern for us. And yet the media has wasted all this time and energy and effort not preparing the American people for the very real challenge to American hegemony from China, but getting us all worked up about whether somebody knew somebody who once was in Russia, who knew somebody who knew an oligarch. I mean, the, the conspiracy theory webs that have been woven so that they are, there can be this fixation on Russia is... It's really troubling these people have as much as much power as they do. It's it's bothersome to me in very profound ways that you have people like Schiff and Mark Warner and others who have taken this position and will suffer no consequences for it. You know, Swalwell thinks that he's going to run for president, thinks he's going to run for president on a gun control agenda. Just as a quick aside, I had that sheriff that I mentioned last week in Colorado who said that he would not enforce the Colorado red flag law that's that's going into that's uh, well under consideration in the uh, Colorado State Senate. And the reason and I, I got to interview him today and I asked him about this and yeah, there are 14 other states that have red flag laws, but there's a very, very important distinction with what they're going to do in Colorado. And that is you can have your guns taken away and have police conduct a search in a home to take those guns away without any representation from the party who is losing his or her guns. So someone can go to a court and say, I don't like, you know, this guy's scary. He's dangerous. Take his guns away. And you receive no notification, no right to appear in defense of yourself the judge can just say, okay, we're going to go, let, let's send the sheriff to go in and take that person's guns away. That is an absolutely a due process violation. The sheriff in Colorado who's saying that, that and, and it's not just him, there are others as well, who are joining together, who are declaring themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries. They uh, very clearly understand that there's enormous due process concerns with this and and they're taking i think the appropriate action which is to raise this at the national level and just show that you know with liberals do this all the time this is whether it's the no fly list and guns or red flag laws and guns their due process concerns are are always really a function of what they want and don't want they'll they'll, they'll advocate a due process issue or they'll advocate for greater due process when they want a certain outcome, but they don't really believe in the principle of due process. They just like the appearance of it as long as they get the political outcome that they want. And that law in Colorado is a very, uh, a very good example of that. So I'll continue to follow, see where that goes. I wonder whether the sheriff, with the attention he's gotten across the country, will be able to stop what is a clearly flawed law from going into effect. Team, we'll be right back. Trump's taxes, everybody. Woo! Exciting stuff, I know. Does it get more exciting than the Trumpster's taxes? Democrats are so fixated on this. I really do believe that Trump is 
It's, 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 there are two possibilities. One is that Trump is kind of rope-a-doping them into exposing the obsession they have with this even more, and then eventually he'll release whatever they want him to release, and there'll be nothing in it, and they'll just look like the fools that they are. That's, that's one possibility. The other possibility, as I see it, is that he doesn't want some somewhat politically, not damaging, but inconvenient or embarrassing stuff about his charitable giving or how much money he makes. None of that would really move the needle, though. So I don't think that that's what motivates Trump here. I think he just doesn't want to do it because Democrats are trying to tell him he has to. And he likes to fight over these things. A surprising show of of backbone on this issue, a surprising uh, moment of clarity from Mitt Romney on this one, of, of all people. I, I wouldn't expect Mitt to come out swinging in defense of, well, not even really defense of Trump, but just at the stupidity of Democrats when it comes to taxes. But that is, and Trump's taxes, and that is, well, taxes in general for sure, but Trump's taxes specifically. Here's what mid it or quit it, as I used to like to say during the 2012 election. Here's what he said about this, place seven. I think the Democrats are just uh, playing along his handbook which is uh, going after his tax returns through a legislative action is moronic. That's not going to happen. The courts are not going to say that you can uh, compel a person running for office to release their tax returns. Uh, so he's going to win this victory. Uh, he wins them time after time. I think Mitt's probably right here. And think of the Democrats are going to spend so much energy on this. No one, I think, in America who voted for Trump last time is sitting around saying, well, if he doesn't release his taxes, I don't think, you know, I think that that's going to be the deal breaker for me. I don't think there's a person in the country, I really mean this, who takes that position. I, I don't think that person exists. If they if they do, it's a handful of them, and they're completely insignificant to the eventual presidential outcome for 2020. But Schiff, who's desperate for a subject to latch himself onto, like the slimy remora he is, uh, you know, Schiff has decided that he's going to make this his next Russia collusion delusion. And he's all about Trump's taxes all of a sudden. Uh, play, well, he has been for a while, but now he's focusing on this even more because Russia can't get it done for him. Play clip four. The IRS is supposed to conduct an examination of the president's returns. Uh, this is a president who has resisted any oversight or inquiry into his affairs. Uh, and so I think the chairman of Ways and Means has every right to determine, is the IRS following its own policy and protocols? But I'll also say this, uh, Jake, there is no legal ground for them here. The statute says the IRS shall provide these returns to the Congress upon request. And yet, has this ever been done before? If this, If that's the intent of the statute and in these circumstances, is this... And oh, by the way, there are also statutes that Congress writes that courts quickly overturn and say, no, that is not okay. And I think that's what the, that's the expectation here. Even if you take the statutory language as written and apply that and say, okay, well, they, well, then you can have the White House immediately bring a challenge to this in court, get a stay, because once the, once the taxes are released, then the damage is all done. So get a stay on that order from the Congress and then it'll go into the courts and, and we'll see. And I, and I think that's the likely trajectory here. And, and Trump is right to make them fight for this. Why, why give them anything? One thing that Trump, I mean, there are many things that Trump has taught, I think, conservatives in general. But one thing that is, that is important from his side is when you're dealing with 
the opposition, when you're dealing with essentially an enemy on a certain subject, don't concede anything. It's kind of like the never apologize approach that Trump has. Don't give them anything. Don't, don't do anything out of a sense of good faith or maybe they'll be honorable in return because they're just looking to crush you. So you, you, know, you certainly don't want to give them your taxes and, and hope that they wouldn't be foolish enough to release them. I mean, Jay Sekulow, one of the president's lawyers, pointed out that you know, this is this is serious stuff if, in fact, Democrats plan to just get access to Trump's tax returns and then publicly release them to embarrass him. This would be illegal. Play five. Since they're not contemplating uh, releasing it, uh, he said this would just be for the chairman to review. I, I do want to turn on to the Mueller report. Well, well hold, hold it, George. Not contemplating they're releasing it. They release it. It's a felony. So, of course, they can't release it. I mean, so this idea, we're not contemplating releasing it. Uh, they need to read Section 6103. Well, 6103 could, says if a person releases it, it's a crime. Right. They could vote to release it in closed session. But I, 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 I take your point. Yep. We all know, though, that they'll, they'll try to leak something. Interesting statistics out today on, on leaks from uh, classified leaks and referrals that have resulted from it compared to the Obama administration and, and what you're seeing now. And here's, guess what? Here's what you see. There are far more leaks of classified information occurring under this administration. You want to know why? Because deep state actors within the federal government, and there are many of them, because the federal government is predominantly staffed now with deep staters, deep state actors in the federal government are taking it upon themselves to release classified information, whether it's the general Flynn phone call with Ambassador Kizilyak or any number of different areas, to release that information to embarrass the president or to hurt this administration. They are willing to risk, and this gives you a sense of how ideologically hardened people in the federal government are against this president and against the Republican Party. They're willing to risk prison time and their careers so that their their livelihood and their freedom to get a negative news story out there about Trump or one of his people. That's a that's a pretty astounding revelation. And there's far more of it now there was during the Obama years. Far more. It's because the people in the government are or not all of them, but there are a lot of people who work in the federal government who view Trump as some kind of a a clear and present danger, that this president breaks all the rules in the sense that the rules that are in place that his detractors are supposed to respect, they just say, nope, it's, it's different now. This time it's different because of Trump. This time we have to get his taxes because Trump. Mick Mulvaney, Acting White House Chief of Staff is saying, look, it's just this is just never going to happen. Play six. They know that one of the fundamental principles of the IRS is to protect the confidentiality of you and me and everybody else who files taxes. They know that. They know the terms uh, under law by which the IRS can give them the documents. But political uh, political hit job is not one of those reasons. You believe Democrats will never see the president's tax returns? Oh, no, never. Nor should they. Think of the precedent this sets. The government could force you to give them all kinds of personal and private information under the promise that this is going to be kept confidential. But they, they'll force you to give it to them, but we promise it'll be confidential. And then, well, because you're a Republican and you're a big deal, you know, whether you're the president or it could happen any number of prominent Republicans. 
But because you're a Republican and you're a big deal, uh, we think we're going to just decide to let this stuff out there because it'll hurt you a little bit. And and that then is is self-justifying. That's all you need to know is that it'll be damaging to a Republican. Therefore, the laws that are in place, the statutes that are in place no longer apply, no longer matter. Or or at least the, the sense of how you interpret these statutes and what they really mean. Trump's taxes are nothing burger 2.0. I'm very sure of that. Will we ever see them? Can't tell you definitively one way or the other. I'm also, I think that the Democrats right now, I'm sure there are efforts behind the scenes to try to find somebody who will leak them. So we will keep an eye on this one, team. Into our social media. And they intentionally try to divide us. If there is an incident, I want everyone to listen to me here. If there is an incident in America that's controversial about kneeling for the national anthem or there's a school shooting or there's an incident between a cop and a kid, you know who comes on to our social media? The Russians. Okay, I want you to hear this. The Russians. They come into our social media and they spin things to get us into these divided camps. That is another Democrat candidate for the presidency named Tim Ryan, who I don't know how many of you have even heard of Mr. Mr. Tim Ryan, but I mean, I can tell you this. All I need to know is what he said in that rant to know that he is obviously either not very bright or quite delusional. Because anyone who thinks that what we really need to be worried about right now, after, after the Mueller report has come out, after we know that there was no collusion, to be giving speeches wherever he was and suggesting that the real issue that needs to be front and center here is Russians sowing dissent on social media. As if that one extra meme that some guy puts on social media is going to change the direction of politics in this country. This is this is pathological. And I, I know I've been saying that for a long time, but these people are infected. Their, their minds have been corrupted. They really think that the Russians are that skilled and diabolical that they're driving American political conversation via you know, Twitter and Facebook and, and some of these other platforms. And it, it's just completely and utterly insane. But that guy thinks he he has a, a shot at the presidency. I mean, for him, it's probably this guy, Tim Ryan, who is very unimpressive. Um, he, he seems to me to obviously be somebody who's just trying to get greater national name recognition for himself. I mean, I, I think that's what's really at work for him. He, he can't be so well. He's delusional enough to think the Russians really affect us in social media. But I think he can't be. um seriously considering that he's going to win the presidency. But here's somebody else who is gaining traction. And I've seen some stuff about how his recent rallies have had trouble drawing people, which is not surprising me because I think it's kind of the same. It's it, He's kind of a one-trick pony. The, the, Beto O'Rourke I'm talking about now. Maybe we should just call him Robert. Robert O'Rourke. I mean, I guess, look, my middle name is Buckman and people call me Buck, so who am I really to... But. I think that the, the choice of Beto is a little bit without getting too deep into it. I mean, yeah, I think it's 
a calculated move here. Um, I don't think that it's just that's what his family calls him, and so that's what everyone calls him. But anyway, back to this uh, Becho O'Rourke character. He was making the rounds over the weekend and said some, wow, really, uh, really stupid stuff. Let's start with, with this one where apparently Beto thinks he understands Israeli politics. He thinks that he should weigh in on what's going on in the state of Israel and, and their political system. Uh, this is what results when he goes down that path. Play two. The U.S.-Israel relationship is one of the most important relationships that we have on the planet. And that relationship, if it is to be successful, must transcend partisanship in the United States. And it must be able to transcend a prime minister who is uh, racist, uh, as he warns about Arabs coming to the polls, who wants to defy any prospect for peace as he threatens to annex the West Bank. Uh, and who has sided with a far-right racist party in order to maintain his hold on power. Now, I don't think that Benjamin Netanyahu represents the true will of the Israeli people or the best interests of the U.S.-Israel relationship or any path to peace for the people of the Palestinian Authority, the Gaza Strip, and the state of Israel. Beto has no idea what the heck he's talking about here. This, this, this notion that Netanyahu does not represent the true will of the Israeli people. Okay, Netanyahu's won, what is it, three, four elections? He's been, uh, he's been the prime minister of Israel longer than, I think at this point, anybody, although maybe Ben-Gurion was prime minister a little longer. Uh, he's been in this role for over a decade. He's won multiple elections. Because of Netanyahu, and no, this, this matters because you have to look at what's going on in this country right now with our border and our immigration policies. Because Netanyahu was supportive of the creation of the Israeli border wall, the Israeli border barrier, that country went from a state of constant terror threat and, and mass casualty attacks, suicide bombings in discos, suicide bombings at weddings to a very, very safe country. And no serious observer could say that it is the result of anything other than, or that there's any one factor that had a greater impact on it than the construction of the what they call the wall over there. The Israeli border wall, in some ways, may have saved the state of Israel. And it was one that the left and the lefties, whether in that country or this country, a lot of criticism about it. Oh, they're turning into an apartheid state. Now, all these things you hear. Meanwhile, what really happened is they just stopped suicide bombers and other terrorist uh, tactics from entering Israeli, uh, Israeli territory, from getting into Israel proper. But now that's, if you're Beto, that's racist, apparently. If you're Beto stopping suicide bombers from going into a crowded discotheque and murdering and maiming lots of young people trying to have a nice night out who aren't doing anything to anybody, uh, but that that's racist. You see, Netanyahu's a racist because of that. And then he sided with a racist party. I, mean, I would love to hear Beto try to explain the Israeli political system. That would be that would be hilarious. In fact, I, I bet if you asked uh, if you asked off the cuff what the Israeli parliament is called. I, I, I don't think he could tell you without someone passing a note into his hand at one of these little town halls he has. I don't think he even knows. And if you're going to wax philosophical about a foreign country's political system, I think you should probably have some idea of what the heck you're talking about. 
and to trash Netanyahu in this way just shows that Beto, he's just, he's just making it up as he goes along. As long as it sounds good and like you're kind of breathy and really earnest, like then what you say has a lot of meaning and merit and it's like really good. Oh, since he's weighing in on Israel, I guess we also have to hear Beto talk about, oh, thank you. Mike tells me he's won four elections. I said three or four. It's his fourth prime ministership right now. So, I, Mike, I think that's a pretty that's a pretty solid record in terms of the will of the Israeli people through their institutions of government. I'd say so. And um, yeah. I happen to have a couple of friends who are Jewish and are, you know, live in Israel. And um, the, the, the word I, I mean, they love him. They absolutely love him. I think he... 100% represents the will of the people there. Yeah, well, I'm I'm quite sure that the Israeli people are rather unified on not letting suicide bombers into crowded restaurants, malls, uh, wedding halls, bar mitzvahs. You know, I, I'm quite sure the Israeli people all agree on that. And not Netanyahu figured that out. Netanyahu is the one that put the policies in place to stop all that. Absolutely. But you can listen to the Netanyahu's of the world, who's a former decorated veteran patriot to, uh, for the Israeli people. Uh, or you can listen to the Beto O'Rourke's of the world who say really stupid stuff like this. Play clip one. That agreement, um, remarkably, with the P5 plus one, the permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany, coming together with the country of Iran to negotiate something otherwise thought to be intractable is almost a miracle of modern diplomacy. Inherently imperfect, it didn't uh, deal with Iran's ballistic missile capacity, it did not deal with Iran's sponsorship of Hezbollah, did not address the conflict in Yemen and Iran's support for Houthi rebels, uh, doesn't even begin to deal with what they are doing in Syria. However, it demonstrably makes the world, and especially the Middle East, a safer place. How? He's talking about the Iran deal there. It makes the world a safer place. How? Iran is still the greatest state sponsor of terror in the world, still working on its ballistic missile uh, technology and production, still has all of its uh, nuclear facilities in place, all the know-how, As we and the, thanks to the Israelis, we have some detail about that. How has it made the world a safer place? So that Iran gets wealthier as a country and enmeshes itself in the international community in terms of its finances and, and commerce, so that it's harder to have a unified front to deal with Iran as soon as they decide to go nuclear. But Beto is, in some ways, I still think a very serious Democrat candidate, despite him being a deeply unserious person, despite that his idea, the fact that his ideas are, are flimsy at best, but expressed with this breathy earnestness that we're supposed to take as some kind of guarantee of Beto's statecraft. The Democrats are deeply unimpressive with the bench they've got right now running for president, and I think it's only going to get worse. Here's a mental exercise to apply to the news in the Trump age. What would you think if this were happening in some other country? Right now, the news is about a president who spends time demonizing immigrants and spreading misinformation and accusing his opponents of treason. He's well known for lying about policies and polls and minority politicians and sometimes even the weather. He grants special access to people who pay money to enter his private clubs. There's a widespread acceptance of the fact that he likes TV shows more than his intelligence briefings, but only shows that fawn over him. 
He attacks other sources of news, calling them enemies of the people. What would it be like if somebody decided to remove all testosterone from your entire body all at one time and then put you on CNN and tell you that you have to constantly bash Trump and use all of your powers of nonsense to try it? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sad that Tucker beat me to nicknaming Stelter the uh, CNN eunuch. Because it's it's very apt, it's very it's very apropos. Uh, there you had Stelter doing what Stelter does, which is just relay a whole series of of anti-Trump talking points, uh, which in so many cases I would just want to I would want to challenge them on, on the merits. So this this notion of demonizing immigrants. We've talked about immigration a lot today on the show. I mean, no one demonizes immigrants. This is not this is not what's going on. I mean, when when Trump talks about MS-13, he's speaking about a very, very violent gang with origins in satanic worship that engages in the most horrific uh, rape and mutilation and murder practices imaginable. And I, I think that having a president that finds that truly abhorrent and wants to fight against that is a refreshing thing instead of a president who's going to say, well, you know, maybe MS-13 is just misunderstood. No, no, I don't want that they're misunderstood. I want a president. I want a commander in chief who views them as really a, a domestic organized crime threat that must be stamped out with all the tools of law enforcement, whether state or or, uh, or federal government. That's what I want. But I, I, I've yet to hear the president demonizing immigrants. I, I don't hear where this where this occurs. The people who say that, you know, Mexico is, is not sending us their best, uh, that they always point to that. First of all, that was one thing that he said among countless hours of talking about immigration. And if you look at this, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, Mexico is not sending America their PhDs and their, you know, by the numbers, what we're getting are generally people of very limited uh, skills and education and little to no English language skills who are coming here to do menial jobs in the short term. But as I've started to point out and people go, oh, you're right. What happens to what happens to an illegal alien dishwasher when he turns 65? Is he going to keep washing dishes? What, what about when he turns 75? What about when he has you know, serious medical conditions that prevent him, legitimately prevent him from working in old age? We all know what's going to happen, right? There's going to be a huge push. And it's not going to be one person. It's going to be millions of people. And there'll be an enormous push with all of them, you know, the, the mainstream media behind it for how if we are a good and just people after all the work that that person has done in this country all that time mind you not filing taxes working off the books and you know, all that but after all of that illegality we are going to be told that it is in a moral obligation on the american taxpayer to pick up the bill for all of that that's what we're that's what we're heading for that is where we are going as a society and i would just note that you know Property crimes are, are something that people get sent away to, to prison for on a regular basis. There are lots of folks who, who suffer very serious consequences for property crimes, including against the state, meaning, you know, you don't pay your taxes. Well, the tax day is coming up. I've got it's such a headache when I have to do my taxes. And it's a reminder of why I generally despise uh, the federal government and the Leviathan out of the D.C. swamp. Uh, that doesn't mean in all things, but in many things, I find it 
untakeable, very annoying, very gross. Uh, but, you know, here I am being told that I have to comply with all these intricate rules on penalty of not just financial uh, f- uh, financial penalties, but also the very real possibility of criminal charges and losing my freedom if I were to just not comply on that. But th- there's a different set of laws, a different set of laws for immigrants, a different set of laws for Democrats, too, as we see. That's that's something that I I can't help but feel a little. um I told you so ism with that, not with you folks listening to the show, but to some of my conservative friends who have pushed back for years on what I've been saying about how there's a two a two tiered justice system. And if you are a leftist with connections or a protected person, whatever that means to the left, you can expect a very different interaction with the criminal justice system than if you are uh, on the right and there's some political sensitivity to it political sensitivity you know yeah rich people people who can pay for good lawyers they they maybe get better outcomes in the justice system than people who aren't rich and connected but when there's a political issue conservative or right-wing political uh, sympathies are if anything they're never a help in the justice system and they're often a major uh, stumbling block for you they're off they're often a point of vulnerability you're likely to get even worse treatment because of your conservative credentials. But this is uh, Stelter to take us back to our oh, Brad Stelter is a shot. See it at right? Just trust these. I'm a media ombudsman. I tell the media when they're lying and when they're not lying. And- this guy's an anti Trump partisan. The fact that he has a show at CNN is preposterous, but he does. Because uh, there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, a lot of these TV executives, they make decisions that if they were judged by the rightness or wrongness of the decision, it would be obvious that there are people who should replace them, but that doesn't tend to happen. You just get bad shows, get replaced with other shows, and and no one really cares because the institution overall just keeps going. But Stelter is a guy who tries to hold hold himself up as a journalist still over at CNN. I am, I'm kind of astonished by that. Uh, CNN still going to this and the anti-Trump greatest hits that he's pulling out here. You're seeing this from a lot of people, but the anti-Trump left is now going to turn themselves into not the Russia collusion uh, maniacs that they've been, but people that just always look for an opportunity to wag a finger at President Trump and tell him how bad he is and you know how, how uncouth he is and all this other stuff. It, they don't get tired of it. Unfortunately, their audience just eats it up. So even if Stelter's like, hey, why are you doing this? It's so terrible. Trump is so awful. It's so rude. It's so bad. A lot of people listen to that. A lot of people. Well, not a lot, but CNN's audience will. They never they never grow tired of it. I believe that this has sparked a reason for us to have a conversation about where we really stand on criminal justice reform. What we really believe when we talk about the rhetoric of a broken system and fixing it. It means that you have to have fidelity to that. And the efforts that I've had on criminal justice reform that were once celebrated by many in this county that are now being attacked because of one case and one celebrity, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is this really about? I've been asking myself for the last two weeks, what is this really about? And as someone who has lived in this city, who came up from the projects of this city to serve as the first African-American woman in this role, it is disheartening to me 
that when we get in these positions, that somehow goals post change. You gotta be kidding me, right? That is Kim Fox, who is the, the woman who made the obvious decision, or rather the decision obviously driven by connections and politics and favored status of Jussie Smollett as a famous uh, aggrieved minority uh, that he would escape without any consequence whatsoever for costing the city of Chicago $120,000 in investigation fees for smearing Trump supporters across the country for lying and lying and lying again to authorities for using the mail to perpetuate a racial fraud a racial hoax and he should escape, as far as Kim Fox is concerned, not only with, with zero consequences, which is what is horrible enough on its own, but as you know, she let Smollett put himself out there after she just wiped this whole thing away and let, let, it, let it be so that he was able to say that he was innocent. So he, it's not even an admission of guilt that she was able to get or that she wanted to get out of him. He now goes around still pretending like he didn't do anything wrong. And he's and what's what's really amazing is that people will believe him. People will believe him. Um, this is from National Review. The un, there's a assistant state's attorney who attacked Fox and her allies for casting criticism of the decision as racist. This is a, a letter that has been sent out. This is what it says from a assistant state attorney. Uh, that has kept his name anonymous. Fast forward to 2019. The state's attorney's office is an international laughing stock as politicians, comedians, scholars, legal pundits, and regular old citizens alike blast its handling of the case against Jussie Smollett. Their criticism is pointed squarely at Kim Fox, the first African-American female elected to fill the prestigious role of Cook County State's attorney. In the wake of said criticism, Ms. Fox speaks at a Rainbow Push Coalition meeting and states she cannot run an office driven by anger and public sentiment. She says the goalposts change when an African-American takes the position of head prosecutor, seemingly calling the critique of the state attorney's office handling of the Smollett case racially based and derogatory toward her people. This is so disgusting and intellectually dishonest and such a case of whiny uh, victimology at play that this woman who wields obviously a lot of power when she's caught being terribly unethical and unfair and showing favoritism in the application of felony criminal law because somebody happens to be famous, black, and gay, she shows that favorite status and then claims that it is because she is black that this is being criticized. Now, let me just be very clear. It does not matter who is in the role of Kim Fox here. It doesn't matter what race that person is or would be, what gender, what anything else. There is absolutely no justification for what she did. And no person in that role who took those same actions would come on any less withering criticism. And it's a slap in the face to anyone paying attention and listening that she would even suggest that there's a... a racist backdrop to the criticism of what is an inexplicable decision from her from the perspective of law. I mean, we all know what the explanation for it really is. Jussie Smollett is tied to 
uh, very powerful people in Chicago Democrat circles, has ties to the Obama administration, and he's a famous gay black actor, and Kim Fox just didn't want him to get prosecuted. That's it. Not because of what he did. What he did was clearly illegal. He's obviously violated numerous statutes, did so repeatedly and willfully, but he just gets a pass because of who he is. This is one of those moments where we have to take a step back and say, if this doesn't undermine our faith in the in the rule of law, if people in the city of Chicago don't feel like after this, justice is quite the opposite of blind, then I don't know what it would take. Because it is very clear to me that when you have decisions that are so unbelievably obvious like this in terms of the politics and the way that people are shaping this and and interacting with this case taking decision making decisions on this case to shape their or to uh, be dictated by their political proclivities that's just too much Uh, it's it's a disgrace what she's done it's not racial at all it's the criticism is not racist that's all nonsense this woman should step down or be removed from office ain't no party like a team buck party because a team buck party don't stop Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed. Roll Call time. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you would like to get in on the Roll Call action very easy to send me a message there, and there's a decent chance that it will pop up here on the show. All right, let's get to it. Jeremy writes, Buck, I completely agree with you on the power broker. I picked it up a few years ago, as it is constantly referenced by intellectuals to be great. After about 400 pages, I had to set it down. It is brutal. I think the only reason I got that far is that I'm a civil engineer and can appreciate the city planning aspects in the book. Any average Joe who claims to have read this is lying and just trying to pound their intellectual chest. Uh, yeah, man, I, I think it is uh, it is one of those books that people constantly say they've read and they, ha- they have not read it. Uh, people have not read that book. It's like Citizen Kane, a movie that we're all supposed to like so much. I tried to watch the first 15 minutes and I'm like, I- I'm not going to make it through this. So I-, I tell you that I didn't watch it. I don't pretend to have watched it. Uh Rosebud. See, I know the references. I just don't know really what they mean or how they happen in the movie. Adam. On the waterbed, it takes an adjustment period. Helps with back issues, and even the heat from the bed kept me asleep longer. However, if you're going to spend that much, I would get a sleep number bed for the adjustable firmness. Shields high. Adam, uh, thank you for the very uh, kind assessment of the waterbed i'm i'm actually not in the market for a waterbed or a new bed of any kind right now but uh if that comes up i'll certainly take it under advisement that you say that the waterbed can be good for the back jerry uh sends me some photos of joe biden groping people thank you jerry thomas buck the ongoing fascination with representative ocasio-cortez seems to be that her dormitory conversation and failure to be coherent has become popular with the college crowd 
who apparently are as incompetent and ignorant of the facts as she is. Ha! Her appeal seems to be that normally associated with a prodigy child. Infatuation coupled with excitement of unexpected revelations. The only thing that perpetuates this mystique is the fact that every time she speaks, she sounds like a 12-year-old. She lasts beyond this election term. It'll be a shock to everyone. In the meantime, she serves as great cover for an obstinate progressive socialist party that has refused to do anything meaningful in their first 100 days of Congress. Keep doing a great job. Your Valley Girl impersonation is very funny. Shields high. Uh, Well, there you go. Thank you, Thomas, for writing in. I appreciate it. Bryce, this got me thinking about other ways that wind farms could cause cancer. Huh? The blades are made of carbon fiber composites. The manufacturing process is filled with cancer-causing chemicals. It has been a difficult task for the aircraft industry to figure out how to protect workers. The same issues must surely affect the workers who make the wind turbine blades. Um, I've never heard anything about any of this, Bryce, so... Thank you for sending this to me. I'll have to look a bit more at what you're talking about. Um, that that sounds weird, though. Uh, Michael. Oh, hold on. Heather writes, hey, Buck, love your show. A few super quick opinions. Well, thank you, Heather, for sharing the opinions. Uh, number one, a very big yes to the beard. Don't ever shave again. Cool. Thanks, Heather. Appreciate it. The beard's come in nicely now. You know, some people didn't have patience with the beard. They they said, oh, it's patchy. You know, it's not. You got to give it a little time before you can really determine whether or not the beard is a good move. I'm glad you like it, Heather. Thank you. And number two, I agree about Bruce Springsteen. Thumbs down for him. Indeed, thumbs down. Number three, I would love some shorter segments to share with others. Ten minutes, for example. I have a friend who could really benefit from listening to you. But there's no way he'll listen for three hours unless you talk about sports the whole time. So if you're serious but looking into that, you might gain some followers from people who start listening with the uh, shorter segments and then move to listen to the whole show. Thank you, Shields High. Thank you, Heather. And I I like that idea. And I'm talking to producer Mike about it. And we'll see how we can make that happen. It's just a question of where they would go. And are they, you know, how do we put them on platforms where there's... See, the problem is if you put small segments up with the main show then people might get confused and only download the small segment or it, it can kind of discombobulate uh, the brand a bit. Uh, I think that's the right word to use there. Kyle writes, Buck on Friday, you mentioned act- progressives acting like they care more about certain groups such as the poor than conservatives do. I think that relates to their overall ignorance of how conservatives think. Frederick Bastiat figured it out in 1850. In part, he wrote, socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs, confuses the distinction between government and society. As a result of this, every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialists conclude that we object to its being done at all. It is as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting persons to eat because we do not want the state to raise grain. If you don't support free college, you want people to be stupid. If you don't support single payer, you want people to die from lack of health care. If you don't support the Green New Deal, you want the planet to be destroyed. It's the same malarkey as 170 years ago. Kyle, it does raise a very important point here, which is that the government doing something does, you know, objection to the government doing something does not equate with objection to anyone doing it or anyone providing a certain uh, service or taking an action. Uh, but that is the way the left views it. They view the state as 
really the ultimate goal of human life is creating a, a utopia through the means or through the mechanism of a state. And the state, therefore, also will have absolute control. This is how you get the state in place of God and so on and so forth with the uh, cultural Marxists, the secular leftist types. That's that's what they tend to do. Uh, Brad. Sheesh, your whale-watching story sounds like it was almost more traumatic to watch than the opening of Ghost Ship. Brad, it was rough, man. Whale-watching, when you're on a boat full of 14, 15-year-old classmates, and you, all, you, all you're doing is tossing side to side and tossing your cookies on the floor, it's not fun, man. Not fun. Whale-watching, I find very disappointing. If, they were, if the whales were breaching all over the place and doing all that cool stuff, that's not what happens. Those of you who've done this know what I mean. You see, it looks like a bunch of black uh, trash bags floating to the surface for a second, and then they go back under. It's really not what people, you know, it, it's not like watching one of these nature shows where you see the humpbacks flying out of the water, and it's amazing. And No, no, that's not how it goes. Richard. Buck, someone suggested that you break down your shows into short topics to be shared on social media. I've been thinking of this a lot whenever you're delivering an excellent monologue of some important topic. What you could do is set up a YouTube channel and put out your brilliant snippets in a video. Just add your podcast picture as well. There are people who do the same thing with Limbaugh. I like that idea, Richard. Um, that is a good idea. And let me think about how we could do that. That that actually makes sense to me. That that seems like something that would work. So thank you for the suggestion, my friend. That is very astute. Rick. Write something that I can't read on air about RBG. Uh, Kevin. Hey, Buck, I love the show. I'm an iHeartRadio listener, and I listen every night. I was just hoping to get your opinion on Trump saying that windmill noise causes cancer. Watching the video, it seems like he's making a joke because the audience seems to be laughing along with him. I think a lot of the news about it is that the left is trying to cling to any opportunity to make him look incompetent. I keep seeing news articles and memes mocking him for it, just like the Kofefe incident. Your thoughts? Kevin, that is all absolutely uh, the, the the point about the media looking for any excuse to just bash Trump. It's absolutely the case. That is definitely true. And I would just say that uh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen this video of Trump talking about the noise and the cancer, so I have to look into that a little bit. But I appreciate you writing in on this one. And yes, for sure, the media wants to do everything they can in every way they can to make Trump look as dumb as they can. That is the goal. That is the point. That's what they like to do. Daniel. Hey, Buck, I've been listening to your show. I'm a Cuban refugee, and I wonder if the Cuban government is somehow behind some of the caravans coming from South and Central America. I wouldn't be surprised if they are. The Cubans always run away from the communist government, and the USA always helps us. So I think they just want to overload the system. Thanks. Good show. Well, Daniel, it was really noteworthy to me. When I, and first of all, thank you so much for writing in and for listening to the show. Uh, it was notable to me that when I was down in El Paso at the border, I did see two male adult Cuban nationals get arrested trying to make a run across the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, that was only a couple of guys, but that just, that just stuck out to me for a number of reasons. One is that the word of what to say for credible fear and all that has certainly spread far and wide, not just into Mexico and Central America, but now even into the Caribbean and to South America. And as to whether the Cubans would, Cuban government would engage in that kind of behavior, uh, yes, the Cuban government would, I think, very 
uh, very happily. So they are always looking for ways to undermine the U.S. and cause greater problems for us. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, but I, I can't prove it. It just would make sense to me. Um, here we go. That's, that's going to be it, folks. Uh, thank you so much for writing in today. Great to talk to you, as always. And I'm excited for our show tomorrow and every day this week. My friends, it's going to be exciting, going to be interesting. I will talk to you then. Shields high.